Uh, hello, all you jetties out there. This is Griffin Newman. Uh, I'm David Sims. A very tall man. And welcome to uh, episode four of the Phantom Podcast. Episode fours usually are really good. Really good. Yeah. That's what I've heard. If you get lucky enough to make it to four, yeah. that's when the money starts rolling in. Uh, this is an exciting episode because we have our first ever guest <gasps> on the podcast. Hello. We've packed him in. We've packed him in. Uh, he is an incredible uh, comedian and actor and comedic actor. All three. Yeah. Proper titles. The, the triple right. threat. Yeah, get all those hyphens in there. Uh, you might know him as a member of the Stepfathers, uh, the uh, famous improv team at the UCB Theater in New York City. You may know him from his work on The Chris Gethard Show. Or you may know him for his long-running... Right? Is that fair to say it's been long running at this point? I think a year. A yeah. year? That's yeah. long running. If we're talking about what, we, I mean, could be talking about his long running difficulties. <laughs> talking about your with life. His long running gym membership. <laughs> um, no, his long running uh, uh, late night talk show he hosts called the George Lucas Talk Show. Which uh, we just played South by Southwest the other night. And how'd it go? Uh, it went very well. It was very fun. Uh, so, interesting comedic choice to uh, fashion a... Um... You haven't actually introduced our guest yet. Oh, his name's Connor Ratliff. <laughs> there we go. Hi. Sorry, just Hello. wanted to do a... The great Connor, Connor. Ratliff. Uh, Would have been great if we'd gone the whole hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Connor Ratliff. Connor Ratliff. Um, I assume, uh, you know, because, I mean, American Graffiti was a big movie at the time. Sure. Uh, but, you know, hasn't really lingered as a classic in the culture as much as you think it would. I, it, I think it gets its dues, but it's not like... I think it's still one of the, the most profitable movies of yeah, all oh, time. Oh, yeah. That's true, In terms right? of yeah. how yeah, much it true. costs to make and how much it has made over, yes. the, over the years. But it, at the moment, it doesn't loom very large in the zeitgeist. I'm surprised by how many people of my generation have not seen it. Because it's a very fun, very watchable movie. Yeah, and there are other movies of that time, similar ilk, Grease, whatever the fuck, you know? Yeah, like yeah. That, that's that, absolutely right. You know, about the same age. culture, Happy Days. Yes, which yeah. endures. Yes, and was really kind of just a lift a from American ripoff. graffiti. Yeah, whitewashing. Um, uh, THX 1138 was a cult classic. Uh, right. There's one other one I'm forgetting, and yeah. then The Phantom Menace is was the only you know big, you know still zeitgeisty film he's made. And you're starting a talk show about him in the year 2014, running to 2015. Are you that big of a Phantom Menace fan? Um, well, I mean, my sidekick in the show is Jar Jar Binks, played uh, by uh, comedian Sean Distin. Of yeah. course, the great Sean Distin, the great Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, I, I think you work with what you got, and, mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's no shortage, even if you were to limit, uh, reference points to one Lucasfilm, mm -hmm. I think you could still build a talk show around it. Because I would say every project that Lucas has done, you can call me out on this if mm -hmm. uh, you disagree, Good or bad, you can point to it and say, this is why this is important or significant or influential. I would agree. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I would agree, uh, especially Strange Magic, which he recently produced, mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, is uh, important that it finally it, lets us know what songs are on George Lucas's iPod. It lets us know that. It also broke box office records. Did it? Yes. Please go on. Uh, no... Uh, no animated film opening on 3,000 screens has ever grossed so little money. <laughs> what was the opening weekend for Strange Magic? Uh, I don't remember. I just know that was the record. But as George Lucas in my talk show, I always say it broke box office records. And when people call me on it, I will cop to 
I will cop to the it. record is. What it is yeah. like doesn't matter. If you break a record, you break a record. You're in the books. The fact of the matter is you're making history. Yeah. Making books. movie Absolutely history. Right. Making movie history. Uh, and it's it's due out on DVD in a few months, I believe. Sure. I, what, I saw a report online that said estimated May 2015. <laughs> they just figured. They're we just are. they're ballparking it there. Yeah. Do you know if there are plans in the works to release it on Blu-ray and digital platforms, or is it only going to be a DVD oh, no. release? <laughs> I, I, I absolutely It's going to go straight it. to bargain bin. <laughs> Uh, Blu-ray, digital. I mean, I think a lot of this stuff, I think, I, as far as I know, American Graffiti is not streamable except maybe as a purchase. I think that's that's thing. one reason American Graffiti is a little less well-known I th- I right now. I think the second American, to see. I think like with anything now, if you want to get to millennials and their ilk, uh-huh. you yep. got to have it be an easy click away. Stress. And I think if American Graffiti was on Netflix tomorrow, everyone would be watching Absolutely. It. It's very, I mean, we're just sheep, you know, gnawing at the cut of, uh, I'm going to end this metaphor before. There are a couple of think pieces out to make teenagers feel like they have to see it. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell, Maybe tell a listicle. Bobby Durst confesses something at the end of the movie? Hey. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so the purpose of this podcast is to nail you to the wall, just like the jinx nailed Bobby Durst to the wall. All right, let's do it. We yeah. want to jinx you. By the way, we record these podcasts a month in advance of their release. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. This this reference is hopelessly outdated at this I, point. Uh, one, of, one of my jokes that I came up with on the fly during the South by Southwest show that I was proud of and it went over pretty well was that George Lucas uh, was under the impression that The Jinx was a TV series that starred Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> Thought that was his new series, and George watched uh, four episodes before, before he finally he, he realized this is not Jar Jar's new show, right. The Jinx. Because it does feel like one of those things when like Puff Daddy became P Diddy, yeah. that like yeah. Jar Jar Jinx would just be like, just, no, no, call me Sir the Jinx. Yeah, <laughs> call me Sir the Jinx. Um, he thought it said, was. He j- thought that, yeah. that all the blinking was like a foreshadowing of like Jar Jar blinks. Like that was a little bit of a like he's on his way. Yeah. Charger does blink, drink, uh, blink very deliberately yeah. in, the, in the Phantom Menace. His yeah. blinking is, he yeah. sort of he moves his whole head just like Robert uh, Durst. For you listeners at home, uh, David is moving his whole head <laughs> while he blinks. Yeah. Um, right. I'm in a different corner this time. I like it. I'm settled into my uh, corner. J- Jinx, J I N K S, in your mind, was what Lucas was thinking. Right. Well, no, I just yeah. thought, no, I thought it was like changing it with like a cool new rebranding. Okay. Like, yeah. don't call me Jar Jar Binks, call me the Jinx. Yeah. yeah. The Jinx. The, the, the definite article is an yeah. important, important part of it. Here that. come yeah. the Jinx. Here come the Jinx. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, if, if the George Lucas talk show sound, it's a real talk show with real guests. It's not always. George Lucas themed, but everything is filtered through George Lucas. Right. First Fridays of every month at UCBS, or most months. Who knows? Maybe a month from now it will stop. But, but it's terrific definitely show. look it up. Check yeah. it out. It's always great. Google it. Yeah. Google it. Um, so, but, but, but that puts you in a unique position. Exactly. Because That's why someone, we wanted you on. Yes. Yeah. You've been spending a lot of time trying to crack George Lucas's mind so you can play him thoroughly. Sure. As an actor, you need to understand the psyche of who you're playing. Yeah, it's really a, well, it's a blend of my own personality. It's sort of sure. like and and George Lucas's. But I, this is something that I, ever since I was a little kid, I uh, you know, I have my I have a Star Wars fan club um, card uh-huh. from when I was a little kid, right? From the early 80s. Yep. That's crazy. Did that something time. come with that? What was was there like a free uh, gift or toy that came with? Or no, but you got a you had a subscription to Bantha Tracks, which was I think I was That's in a the great title. Um, I didn't know that was the name. That was the name of the newsletter, um, and I think the year that I was a member, I have these things to show. Uh, without saying too much, it's clear that I 
sign up for the snack club a little too late. <laughs> it's I, weird because I mean weird, we're yeah. talking like twenty years before You're the Phantom Menace yeah. was late. released. I know. Yeah. I mean, the time. I'll just say, yeah, maybe too early or yeah. too late. The timing was off. Because George right. keeps on talking about yeah, I have these ideas for a while. You yeah. know, right? But that's In that's a long lead up. Sure. For you to join a fan club just so you could get pre production. Well, there was a lot or? of there was a lot of hype prior to. The release of the Phantom. Menace. Oh, we know. We've been covering a that. lot of hype. Yeah. Well, that's we're we're covering lines out the door. This is the opposite end. Uh, you know, where where the Bantha poopy comes out. What we're we're dissecting in this episode because we all rewatched the film last night with the commentary yes. track. Yes. yes, this was recorded in two thousand one, two years after the release of the film for the original DVD release. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's him with a bunch of uh, other uh, Ben Burt. I think it's yeah, Ben Burt, the sound designer, yeah. uh, the producer Rick, Rick McCollum, McCollum yeah. and, uh, and an editor and of some of some. That's right. Kind. Yeah, and Dennis Murin, the visual effects mm-hmm. uh, lead and that, guy. Dennis Franz from MIPD. Dennis, Dennis Franz, Franz is there. Yeah, yeah. it's weird. He Franz talks Ferdinand. the whole time. Franz Dennis Ferdinand, Franz, the band. Yeah, Franz. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. Uh, when they when they merged in a teleporting yeah, accident. Exactly. Yes, right. Yeah. When Dennis became one being was the leader of Franz Ferdinand. Uh huh. Um, but, but this, uh, we finally got to really dig into, uh, the film in George's own words, how right. he views it, um, yeah. knowing that the response wasn't great. Um, I suppose so. He's, he's, he doesn't, he sort of skates around that. They don't acknowledge, yeah. he, Lucas doesn't acknowledge that. I will no. say that the first comments on the commentary track, I'm not sure who it was, are the most acknowledgement of any negativity because they were like, Man, those first two weeks, executives are freaking out. Like they're not as excited about the the way the opening title. Like that, the problem in those first two weeks was like that they don't like the way the music and the when you see Star Wars at the top of it, that it wasn't getting the same reaction that it did back in the day. Mm. Yeah, uh, when other films, I mean, of course, similar films. Yeah, a- across the decades of cinema history, yes. a lot of movies start out with credits and music. And it is what you're getting, saying. Yes, that is what you're saying. You couldn't be. Referencing yeah, anything more direct than that, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you wouldn't want to get docked points. No. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so, like the great, but Gilda. you're right. You're they're, right. They're, 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 like, they're the acknowledging that there is, is yeah. the opening. Like we somehow great lost Gilda. the audience uh, in those opening seconds, and that was the only <laughs> acknowledgement in the, of any issue that anyone had with the movie. It's it's funny because so much of the commentary uh, is focused on the post production where the shots were first being delivered and the mm-hmm. you know the producers and everyone was seeing it and how wonderful it all seemed to them and how and it's like this blissful universe yeah. where it's like oh the first shot of the Gungan city there was a wave of applause among the post production yeah. crew you know right. like is the sort of you know they don't my, talk about the audience my recollection of seeing Phantom Menace uh, not on opening night you should talk about it because we've talked about we've it talked I think about yeah, it, yeah 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 my recollection I saw it not on the the Thursday night or whatever when the midnight screen sure. I saw it the next night okay. I, I had flown out to visit a friend in LA and so we already there had been 24 hours uh, or, or close to of it chatter. of chatter so we already knew people are uh, mumbling about it right but it's still the internet is a little more infant so like yeah. it's, it's a little less you're not going to just have it, it wasn't ringing like in now. your it ears it wasn't Twitterscape or anything exactly. but this is a movie that it had a fan club established for 20 years it's prior true. to its release and you so were there was, a member yes. a card carrying card carrying member, member. Yeah. Uh, I remember the opening uh, 15 seconds worked gangbusters. Yeah, they just <laughs> like went it, over like a charm. I remember when the first thing, because, I mean, I, I'd, I remember during the, when that opening chime rung out, mm-hmm. I remember gasping. Wow. I remember being like, it's happening. Yeah. 
And then shortly after that, I remember as soon as the text crawl started, being like, that's not great. <laughs> we cover episode one of we this podcast. We crawl. read the text crawl <laughs> yeah. out, and it, it really is just uh, violently boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's aggressive almost. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then there is, but that's, yeah, that but that's yeah. the, the only thing that's criticized really is in that the, opening. I'm sorry, yeah. is the opening, which is I would say they nailed it. <laughs> just the. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's that's great so far. It couldn't have been better. You know how in when uh, there's a political debate, you'll see the sort of lines of audience approval yeah. going up. So you know, it's at it's at ten, yeah. right at the start, and then it, the slow decline begins yeah, yeah. immediately after that. Yeah. Um, th- this was the thing that jumped out to me immediately from listening to the commentary. And uh, ju- just to restate um, for, for Connor and our listeners, the goal of this podcast is, as always, um, to try to figure out what this movie's about. Right. Um, yeah. We're so trying to get at yeah. the themes of this movie, what, what it's trying to tell what, us. What is the Phantom Mass about? About, if we can about sum its it up world quickly. and about our world. And, and, you know, we're bringing you on as someone with insight yeah. into George Lucas's mind. We're listening to his commentary to mm-hmm. get a sense if we can reconcile these two things and figure out at least what he thinks it's about. I mean, Lucas said at one point... One of the major themes of the movie is biology versus physics. He said that in the commentary. Yeah, he did say that. Yeah, I mean, he overtly said one of the themes of this movie is biology versus physics. Yes, which I, I, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> I mean, there's not a ton of evidence uh, in, on the side of physics in this movie in a weird sort of no, way. No, I guess physics is just soundly defeated if you consider physics to be like robotics and gravity <laughs> and things like that, because. The Gungans, I feel like that's a very biology sort well, of focus. The force yes. that's a blood test that's biology, right? Yeah. I like that. It's I a liked, scientific movie. Uh, just to, just to, while it's in my head, I really liked that Liam Neeson talks about the midi chlorians and keeps referring to them as bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> you mean George Lucas keeps referring to them as bacteria? Does too. he refer to them as bacteria? He, he refers to them as living organisms in your body that would exist almost as another life form inside you like it's some sort of like foreign invader. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but, but, and then but he Liam likes Neeson, that concept. But Liam Neeson just keeps just saying it's bacteria. <laughs> like the Jedi's are just a little filthier <laughs> in a way that like, yeah, I mean that's what we talked about last, last week. week. We said it was a blood disease. Yeah, yeah the yeah. force that being a Jedi, it's essentially a blood disease. But it's it's also like it, I feel like it's probiotic. Like it's sure. like, like sure. they're, they're good, good good bacteria. bacteria. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But absolutely. It is, it is and that it, probiotic would would. I mean, this Pro- is about biology, biology defeating yeah. the physics. So, hey. do you remember when exactly he says that in the film? What, um, like, what inspires him? To- I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, it's in the later half of the movie. He right. was just saying one of the themes of this movie is biology versus physics. Yeah, I remember thinking like, that's not what I took away from it, but it does <laughs> hold up now that we talk about it. Yeah, that it's about uh, Gungans are kind of the yeah Gungans. The- he pronounces it as Gungans, and he talks about how they've grown their cities, or someone mm-hmm. one of the yeah. people yeah. talks about that. You know how it's all grown, and that that's reflected in the design, and uh, and yeah, and, and the the force is is a very is a biological phenomenon. Well, I remember that point where he said in the commentary that he was like, um, you know, for me this was about this fine the final battle between the battle droids and and the Gungan army is for him a representation of the Vietnam War. I think everything for George Lucas is a yeah. represent, right? Because American graffiti is about the Vietnam. Right. A lot of it's about the it was Vietnam. Like that War. was an important thing mm-hmm. in my college years, and I, I felt the need to represent that. And so I, I found the idea very powerful of you know American military with all this advanced weaponry right. going against a very um, what was the word he used? I wrote it down because it was so primitive. Uh, yep, primitive. <laughs> a primitive culture. Thank you. Mm-hmm. He was like going against a I primitive. Think, culture. I don't think he meant it as a pejorative. Though. No, he no, didn't no. At but all. I thought it was interesting. He means it. Uh, yeah. He means it in a positive way, but. 
I feel yeah. like that's where George Lucas often trips himself. Yeah, because I feel like he probably thinks of Vietnam War as biology versus physics. <laughs> yeah, I think he probably does. I, physics is just the wrong word. Yeah, yeah. he's using a, the wrong word. Uh, yeah, because physics is like the Im- imaginary forces or what the unseen forces that sort of guide all sorts of yeah. behavior yes. in energy and yes. matter. I it's think not he means robots. It's like trees versus robots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he means robots. <laughs> Uh, well, the the Vietnam War thing he was saying, you know, this idea of like, you know, it, it's it's uh, biology versus technology or whatever right. he said. And this film is coming out 20 plus years after the end of the Vietnam War. Oh, yes. War. Com- yes. A comfortable 20 years yes. after yeah. the Vietnam War. Um, and, and the implication is that the battle droids uh, represent uh, technology advanced weaponry. Right. But the, the, the clumsiness therein. Like, yeah, right. The, the, and the, and the yeah. Gungans are, are the biological, organic, right. primitive culture. Mm-hmm. But you look at them. The battle droids are robots, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's that's some pretty advanced technology. But they don't work super well. No. It's, and they're governed from a central yeah. computer, which is their undoing. But yeah. they don't seem to have much in the way of their own intelligence. No, um, right. they don't function very well. They don't walk very they well. They walk very slowly. They yeah, plod. with a duck butt. <laughs> yeah, and they uh, can be defeated very easily. And in terms of weaponry, all they have is just a basic blaster. Yeah, the Gungas, on the other hand, even if you're telling me these are organic weapons, right? They have force field bubbles. They have a force field mm-hmm. bubble, which is remarkably effective. They have giant dinosaurs. Yep, they have like laser shields. Yeah, and, and they, they have, have these exploding. Bombs. Yeah, the plasma yeah. bombs. These like grenades of pure energy that, that... they harvest from the water. <laughs> right. right. Okay. So even if all all this stuff is organic and they harvest it. Their technology is far more advanced in, and, in terms of the weaponry. And they don't discuss this at all, but I, do, or, but I do think that it's an important factor in understanding this conflict between the surface people and the water people. Mm-hmm. Like They obviously have aggressively kept everyone out of their territory yeah. with this. You know, they are not a peaceful people at all. No. Naboo, you know, up upstairs, they're pretty peaceful. They mm-hmm. are, they say, keep repeat. We don't have an army. Yeah. We're simple. A simple, you know, group of Romanesque, you know, art people who all like live in palaces of marble columns, but they don't have much of an army. The Gungans, I think, are the aggressors. The Gungans. Sorry. The Gungans. Well, that was another interesting point he made. We're jumping all around here. But yeah, he, we are. But when they first go to Naboo, he said the whole idea was that he wanted Naboo to represent a culture that's focused on beauty yes. rather than technology. Yeah. I actually liked that point that he was I trying did to too. make. Yeah. That kind of goes to our point, our analysis yes. from at least that's why episode two of our podcast, that the film is maybe this rules of the game esque yeah. takedown of bourgeois culture. Yeah. Uh no, Connor just wrote a thing on his phone wrote to ask an excellent me if question can. on his phone. Yeah, you can ask you can bring this up. Yeah. Yeah. Um okay what I wrote was do I lose points for mentioning space balls? No, you wouldn't. No, you can mention another film. No. It's a great movie. Because yeah. I actually think... I actually, I would argue that Phantom Menace cribs a couple things from Spaceballs. There are some themes that come up in th- Spaceballs that Phantom Menace then I think seems I to think do the earnestly. Above, yeah. The above ground uh, uh, Naboo uh-huh. seems like the planet from Spaceballs. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. More than any... Yeah, it, it really does seem like that's the Dick Van, Dick Van Patten Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, but, but, I would agree with that. And also, Dot Matrix is, if not visually in terms of energy, very similar to C three PO as a character, which yeah. is kind of interesting. Which, and C three PO is such a minor character in this. I movie. know. Yeah. I we know. haven't really gotten to him yet. It but does we'll feel talk about like him. he cribbed a lot from Spaceballs. I don't balls. think Dot Matrix looks like C three PO. C three PO is just like uh, <laughs> yeah, I said. I said not visually. Well, you know, energy, personality. Dot Matrix is golden. Yeah, you know who visually Dot Matrix does look like, and we do have to talk about her because we have to talk about her every week. TC fourteen. TC fourteen. We we talk about TC fourteen a lot. Hottest bitch in the game. 
14 is the shiny silver protocol droid who serves the tea Ooh, yeah, in the yeah, first yeah. scenes of the yeah, movie. Yeah, right. yeah. If there's a larger sort of uh, character arc. Played for by the, Lindsay Duncan, by the The great way. Lindsay Duncan. Mm. Which we discovered last week. Um, Noted it, British character actor. If there's a larger character arc for the two of us, David, on this podcast, I think it is us getting comfortable enough in our discussion of fan mass to acknowledge that we both just want to fuck the shit out of TC14. Yes, I think that's maybe more important for you, but it is important for both well, of us. Yeah, or your, your id is showing more, I guess. Okay. You, you let it rage publicly, whereas I'm a little more repressed. Yeah. Well, as you, you often say you want to fuck the shit out of TC14. I would love to fuck the shit out of TC14. This is the first interesting thing that jumped out to me in the commentary. Because okay. it starts yeah. almost like second five. And just to talk about the commentary, it is an edited piece of of audio it yeah. is not the sort of classic uh, DVD commentary where they just sit on a big fluffy couch and they're like oh yeah. you know I have a story about this and they chalk it, it, it's yeah. uh, four or five but different people talking and they're all edited together yeah, and then like, Dennis Franz talks over the whole thing which like, is really confusing yeah, yeah. go on uh, it's like yeah it's like they just recorded everyone like free associating about the film and then cut together the best bits which I and overlay them to the sort of roughly, roughly. corresponding yeah. points yeah um you were talking about how how they were disappointed uh, by the response at the opening credits, the, the you know, yeah. fanfare, the 20th Century Fox fanfare, then the silence, then the boom, and then the the scrolling thing. God, it's interesting to me from from the moment the commentary starts, he keeps on talking about Star Wars as a larger franchise. Like he keeps on saying things like, and of course, you know, this is how all the Star Wars movies begin. And I think this is a big point as to why Episode One fails, is because he was so concerned with the future movies he wanted to make in this franchise. Yes, you know, it keeps on coming back to this point that we knew this was meant to be a big franchise. This was Episode One that implies that there would be a two, a three, a four, right. maybe even a five, a six. Who knows? A seven. Ooh. <laughs> You know? sound, that seventh one sounds really exciting. I mean, Overkill, but we're Fast and Furious are up to seven That's entries true. right now, and it's showing nowhere in tear. And Fast and Furious began after The Phantom Menace. Yeah, 100%. Definitely influenced by it. Yeah. Um, but but it goes to this point, he keeps on saying, like, you know, throughout all the films, I want this to be a recurring theme. And it's I think that's a problem is that he wasn't putting enough focus into just making Phantom Mass engaging on its own. He was too worried about the world he yeah. wanted to build later. Right. He talks about this as setting the scene, explaining the characters, setting up the plot. He says that. that he says the Phantom Mass is act one of a right. play. Yeah. And it says the whole point is to introduce these characters. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, and he gives every character a little hero moment, in his eyes at least, like R2. D2, uh, you know, fixing the, the, fixing the shield generator. I would say, at the risk of making the title perhaps unwieldy, mm-hmm. um, that I would rechristen the film Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. You got to start somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that would give it a sort of a, a self-deprecating whimsy. Yeah, yeah. that might have been bit useful. Of, just a little bit of like, buckle up because uh, <laughs> look, look, this it's all about the potential. This yeah. might get good. Yeah. yeah. This is actually an important point to state just because, you know, if any of uh, you folks listening to this episode are just kind of Ratliff fans who didn't bother listening to our first three episodes, you need some background on it. Um, Phantom Mass was meant to be an epic saga, right? I think the Star Wars film series. Yeah. And it just it just never happened. It never materialized. So we only have the one Star Wars film called The Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. And uh, if someone were to reference other films, I wouldn't even know what they were talking about. But George uh, frequently talks about... Uh, his his other plans. planned films, yes. The plans. Yeah. What, how he thinks these characters are going to turn out. Um, another interesting thing he talks about is uh, he states repeatedly over the course of this commentary that the film is, A, told from the point of view of the Jedis. Yes. Which yes. I would argue it isn't really. No, not really at all. Uh, but, but it's an interesting point that he's, like that they are sort of um, almost unimportant actors who sort of move through the plot of the film. Yes. You know, influencing it, but it is really... 
Amidala's tale, Naboo's tale, told through their eyes. He does eyes. say that. He yes. says she's what? the main... She's, she's the protagonist in a way. Which I would also disagree with. Her eyes. Who do you think is the protagonist of the movie? I think one of the biggest problems with this movie is that it doesn't have a protagonist. Yes, it, I, it's, more, it's like Magnolia. It's, it's like, like right. shortcuts. It's very Altman-esque. It's uh, a Nashville. Yeah. It yeah. is. No, it's a three-protagonist movie. It switches abruptly, almost yeah. shudders between the yeah. three. It's Amidala for the first third, and then it's very much an Anakin movie. And then at the end, bizarrely, for like 20 minutes, it's an Obi-Wan movie. And you yeah. barely understand that character at all yeah but it's a, suddenly about his pathos but which... i would argue the film lacks watching it you know despite george's intentions lacks a uh, a central uh viewpoint mm. you know this yeah. is this is the perspective from which you're viewing this film and lacks a central character in relation to the story yeah whose whose thread we're really following emotionally i like his idea of Amidala and then the Jedi's is, is our sort of ground, but like he doesn't quite pull it off. I think one of the big mistakes that I, that I learned about through this commentary track is that she said, uh, um, um, Natalie Portman said, I worked on an accent for this character and then George didn't like it, so we threw it away. I didn't, I missed that. Uh, yeah. she so she had a different accent. I think one of the problems performance wise with the movie is that uh, actors who are normally great in even in Movies that aren't great. Like sure. we've seen Liam Neeson be great in movies that aren't mm-hmm. great, or even be just very good in movies that aren't I, great. Liam Neeson has almost made a career out of elevating yeah. subpar material. Yes, and I would say that he's not bad in this, but he no. is at the low end of his. He uh, seems range. detached. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, there are very few moments where he's allowed to be as interesting as he is naturally. Yeah, I agree with that. Yes. Um, and I think. I think someone I know there's a lot of fan commentaries for this movie that you can find online. I don't know if anyone is bothered to edit together a com- I think you could edit together a very interesting commentary track for this movie using interviews that various actors and people involved in the movie have given over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one of the stories that's most interesting about the making of this movie that's not referenced at all in no. the, this commentary track I think is, I know what you're about to say. Um uh, wh- wh- who's the actor um um uh, from the Limey um, Terrence, Terrence Stamp. Stamp, yes. Yeah. yeah, Terrence Stamp shows up to film, and he thinks he's going to be filming a scene with Natalie Portman, mm-hmm. and said it's a green screen and a ping pong ball, right? and he's like, what is this? And they're like, oh, uh, that's just look at that as if it's Natalie Portman. And he was like, <laughs> fuck this. <laughs> like, he just did not, he ate, there, He was done. He was like, I'm not going to do, if you if you ever do make any more of these, I'm out. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know. I didn't know that he could have been in 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 sequels. I didn't know that that was a possibility. He might have had the option in his contract, yeah, but none right. of those options were yeah. picked up. Well, of course. Uh, but he made it clear. No, no, thank you. I think you. the plan was. Did he do the scene? Because he does, of course, have one he's in scene. Because yeah, like he showed where up, he talks to her. But he made it clear. I know the deal is that I keep coming back for these, but I will not. Wow. Um, he was like, "This isn't what I do for a living. I don't show up to talk to your." Ping pong ball. Right. Well, and then, and I mean, it's been, you know, Liam Neeson took a break from acting, right? Because he was so worn out, worn out making the yeah. film for the same reasons. I think yeah. worn out acting against nothing. But before we move away from uh, Terrence Stamp, I just want to quickly note that I have read in, a, in perhaps that same interview, that same quote, that uh, he was disappointed not only because he had to act against no one. Had to act against a ping pong ball, but specifically he did the movie because he had a crush on Allie Portman. Ooh, wow! Who yeah. at the time was fourteen. Terrence Stamp was I don't know, one hundred and eight. Yeah. <laughs> he's an old man. That suddenly uh, shifts the story <laughs> yeah, into one where it's like Lucas is the hero of that story, <laughs> yeah. where he's like, he's nope, like, I'm keeping Allie Portman away from you. You're Get gonna, me a ping pong ball. <laughs> talk to that 
penguin. Uh, talk to that ping pong, ping pong ball as if it is something that is yeah. illegal for you to do. <laughs> I think Natalie Portman may have been sixteen. Oh, hey. which in England is age of consent. That is correct. It is. Yeah. A, a, so that's why they haven't grown up in England. That's yeah. the only reason it's they filmed in England. <laughs> right, Darren Sampin's sister. Filmed in England. No, filmed I mean, with her. Wait, what's this? <laughs> I can't be with that. It's a ping pong ball. I mean, I'll say there is a, a revealing moment in the commentary for Lucas where he is talking over the scene where Anakin says goodbye to his mother, and he mm-hmm. says that he has a range of takes of the scene. Some are less emotional, mm-hmm. which is hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. And some are more emotional, and he specifically refers to people carrying on in the scene, yeah. during this scene of a slave child being ripped from his mother's arms, basically, by someone he met two yeah. days ago. Okay, and okay, all right, calm down. Yeah, and he uh, he's like, you know, we could have had like a more, but I decided not to. And then he gives no real, he does keep talking, but there's no real explanation for why, but it yeah. is... He he stripped a lot of emotion. We were talking about Liam Neeson That's out of this film. Where where a child who is raised by a single parent yep. is leaving the only home he's ever known. That's to correct. Stranger, is, uh, travel around the galaxy with strangers, with literal people he just met who uh, abducted him after doing a blood test on him. George watched the in, initial cut of that scene in which the emotions played out as you would expect them to in real life, and went, right. oh, "This is too saccharine." Like. Yep. This is too melodramatic, and and cut it down more and more, which speaks a lot to his priorities. I um uh, I I'm not trying to brag here, but I did appear on one episode of a French TV show called Taxi Brooklyn South. You did. Mm. Um, I didn't know that it was there was South in the title by the end of it. I thought it was just called Taxi Brooklyn. Maybe they dropped the South. Yeah, who knows? Uh, but Counselor, I, you better be going somewhere with this. Yes, uh, there, there was, there was uh, the the uh, uh, director of uh, that show, who I will not state by name, but you could very uh, easily uh, figure it out, uh, who has directed a lot of uh, Liam Neeson action films. Um, it was a ten-page dialogue scene, mm-hmm. and I was only supposed to film for one day. And we spent the first eight hours filming uh, a, a foot chase that took up two sentences in the script. Mm. Right? So it was just eight hours of, I wanted a moving close-up of the feet and the hands sure. and the gun and just all these different tracking shots. And at the end of the day, we were losing light. And they were like, oh, we only have 45 minutes left to shoot the dialogue. We have to start the dialogue scenes. And he just like turned to me and the other actors inside and, and went, yeah, I guess so. now we do the uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and it yeah. was like, this guy is so... Uninterested in working with actors and mm-hmm. capturing dialogue and doing any emotional scenes, he just likes shooting stuff moving around. And George seems to sort of have the same sentiment. Old yeah. Georgie Porgy, he says, I mean, not only you know the thing about it, cutting the emotion down, um, but he also keeps on talking repeatedly throughout this commentary about how he views it as a silent film. Yep, mm-hmm. which which I thought was interesting. He doesn't think the dialogue's important. Yeah, he wants it to play perfectly. Yeah. Without the sound, which is interesting because it would not make any sense without yeah. the sound. It would be nice to look at. I would like to do it as a future episode. It's got to be kind of hurtful to Ben Burt. Yeah, definitely. And John Williams. That's yeah. a good point because Ben Burt's work defines the film. Probably I would argue more than the, the strongest dialogue. element of the Absolutely. film. Absolutely. And uh, without that, you do lose a lot. But without the dialogue, you could probably basically understand what was going on. I, I think in certain ways it'd be— It's told in very broad— He's a very old-timey yes. director in that way. But for I, I want to suggest for a future episode mm-hmm. because I know you guys were talking about like the sustainability of this podcast, like how sure. long can uh, you? Right, yeah. I would say that for one of the <laughs> for one, one of the episodes, of the episodes yeah. you should take um, the like a piano score from an old silent movie, anyone like the Gold Rush by Chaplin or something yeah, like that, sure. and just watch the Phantom Menace with an old time yeah. uh, piano. Yeah. Score. I'd love to do that. That's no, not what good. Steven Soderbergh did with Raiders of the Lost Ark, right. which George Lucas produced. Yeah. He he converted it to black and white, mm-hmm. 
and he cut all the dialogue and sound effects out and played Trent Reznor music underneath it <laughs> to show to how that. strong it worked. But I want you, to, I want old time, old timey, yeah, yeah, yeah this sort of yeah. jangly, dun, dun. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he does repeatedly say he goes back and forth between whether it's a silent film or whether the entire movie is music. He keeps on yeah. harping on and on throughout this entire commentary. It's like the film is a symphony. Oh, yes. it's mm. a symphony. It's like yes. a jazz piece. What do you think John Williams' work in the movie? It's very strong. We, I think we've talked about it a little bit. Yeah. It's terrific. Characteristically strong. Yeah. I remember great, great at the time composer. that this movie came out because there was a lot of promotional tie-ins to the movie. Yeah. And you would hear the Duel of the Fates uh, uh score before the mm-hmm. movie came out in a lot of the commercials and there was a big Taco Bell tie-in yeah. and mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for some reason in my head I you know how you'll sometimes give a lyric to an instrumental piece and yeah. you can, then you can't forget it I, I can't I can't remove this lyric from the Duel of the Fates which is come and buy your food at Taco Bell <laughs> and I just like tacos 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 so that's just going for your head that's as, right during as, as this climactic duel. Come and buy your food at Taco Bell. If I can do, I mean, this might be a good moment to do a quick uh, uh, merchandise sidebar. Uh-huh. Um, if, yeah, uh, Griffin I, often focuses on the merchandise tied into this movie. Very yes. interested in the merchandise related to this film. Um, in recent research, I, I might be getting the number wrong, but I believe uh, PepsiCo mm-hmm. paid $100 million to have the rights to um, merchandising tie-ins, promotional items across all their brands. Yeah. So there was a series of Pepsi cans. Mm-hmm. They had like 30 different Pepsi cans wow. with different characters' faces on them. You had to collect them all. And if you collected all of them, you could send in something to get a Gold Yoda can. And the mm. Gold Yoda can Would was also- Would it come also- with Pepsi inside? Yeah. So okay. like people were like buying Pepsi cans and then emptying them out and then creating walls of Pepsi cans in their homes. Lord. Like it wasn't like blind. You You- would know you'd have to go into a bodega course, and yeah, dig right. through and go. Oh, I need a shimmy. I need a shimmy. Like mm-hmm. I got fucking eight Miss Win- Mace Windows, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing was not only did they have a Taco Bell tie-in, they because they had overspent so wildly on this uh, the rights. Uh, Pepsi owns Taco Bell, KFC, and uh, Pizza Hut, mm-hmm. and it was all three together. Yeah. There was like a total of like. Oh, so you had to visit all three fast food chains to unite the set of whatever yes. you were looking for. Yeah. Um, I should mention this, even though this is a big uh, this is a big diversion, but it's yeah. important. No, no, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. Um, I uh, a few years before when this movie was announced, it was going to be made. Uh-huh. Sure. Um, so you're like 13 years into your club membership at this point, <laughs> right? Yeah. What, what year yeah. are we talking? Uh, 1996. Okay. I created a website. That was uh, at the time that Yahoo was the main search engine, and it was it was not a an engine so much as it was a directory. It was, yeah, it was curated. Yeah, you remember how there'd be little sunglasses next yeah, to sites they considered cool? cool. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, and my, I created a character called Ryan Johnson, and the website was called Ryan Johnson's Star Wars Prequel Rumors. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. That, that, that is yeah. amazing. Uh, we, that. we can't really discuss. We can't why, discuss but, why, yeah, but yeah, that, that is, is mind blowing. Yeah, it is um, with, with a Y, though I assume. Uh, yeah. Ryan, yeah. yes, with a I later made an independent movie that played at the Austin Film Festival, a couple of other film mm-hmm. festivals. Called Brick? No, no, that, that <laughs> uh, was about this character that I'd created for this okay. website uh, mm-hmm. and uh, what a nightmare he was. Um, <laughs> the website was in part, uh, I would say, an early satire of a certain kind of unpleasant fandom. Like an Ain't It Cool News type. A little bit, yeah. But uh, it was the f- if you looked up Star Wars prequel rumors in 1997 – my site was the first site listed. <gasps> On Yahoo. Wow. Did and it have cool sunglasses next to it? I don't remember if it had cool sunglasses yeah. next to it. Oh, but yeah. That was the dream, of course. M- my goal was I was going to make up fake rumors about uh, 
Star Wars Episode One and see if I can get them reprinted in any kind of mainstream publication. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of excitement about what's this movie going to be about. And so um, if you Google the phrase, if you Google these words, if you Google Trinkies, Star Wars, prequel, and spin. <laughs> Trinkies. Um, Trinkies, T-R-I-N-K-I-E-S. Um, you will find a, a post by me, but also a, a Google Books archive of the Spin Magazine issue that uh, they did like a four or five, a four to six page article about all the different rumors were online, and they were rating the various rumors. Sure. And my rumors, my website was uh, really uh, overwhelmingly sampled for this article because I clearly had the worst rumors. <laughs> so you were, you were the, almost the baseline that they judged yeah. against. And and you could tell like I was part of what made this article fun to put together is like, right. look at these dopey rumors. Um, they made a sidebar, which is maybe my greatest accomplishment, of um, various titles that were rumored for the film. Yeah. In the Star Wars lettering that we would all come to know from Phantom Menace coming yeah. out. My favorite of the titles was Trinkies Go Home. <laughs> the plot of the first movie was that it was about uh, Anakin's 10th birthday party and uh, that there would be a race of squirrel-like creatures with red noses called the Trinkies. And they would at first be there'd be misunderstandings, but then they all come to be friends. Um, so you can look that up and see some of the... Uh, I, I'm reading. What's What's amazing is that the other rumors that are being talked about here uh-huh. are all like spot on. They nailed that Liam Neeson will na- play a mentor of Obi Wan called either Both or Qui Gon Jinn. So you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and one of those is a lot more specific than the other to get that right. That yeah. uh, Yaddle, a member of Yoda's race, will be introduced, and as we talked about last underused. week, underused, underused. But she's there. Yeah, she's. The Although best it character. does say that she will have pink skin, a floppy ear, and a Dennis Hopper style eye patch, which is not true. Well, that's a, that's a combination of Yaddle and uh, Evan Peel. Uh, I guess so. Though. Evan Peel isn't, isn't of Yoda's race, but he's missing an eye. Remember, he has the uh, big scar across oh, one yes, eye, right, and he's right. got long per- uh, pink ears. And uh, it does say that Jar Jar Binks will be chubby and three-eyed, but still alien sidekick. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he will be a source of uh, Ewokian hilarity. That's yeah. a, an adjective that not, means nothing to me. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're, I think we were talking about the commentary. I think we've, yeah. we've gotten off track. We've gotten off track because that was really important. No, I want to read well, that website. Um, we're, we're like seven like layers away right now, but I just want to, before uh, I, I forget. Uh, uh, Please. I, the, the point I was building up to with the, the merchandise sidebar yeah. is uh, to, to, unite the th- yeah, to unite the three worlds. Each store represented one planet. So oh, like, I see. I see. One, Coruscant. yeah. One was Coruscant, Coruscant one Naboo. was Tatoo, uh, Tatooine, yeah. and one of them was must have been Naboo. Was Naboo? Yeah. Yeah. Those are the three. Those are the three planets in yes. the movie. Yeah. And so each restaurant only had items connected to one of those planets. Ooh, Coruscant must have sucked. That, oh, that it's one. so shitty. Have we? Have we we want to get. I want to get Connor's opinion on Coruscant. How do you feel about Coruscant? The whole planet's a city. We've talked about this a, a lot. Planet, right? Yeah. The whole planet's incredibly one incredibly illogical city. this is. And it's addressed in the commentary. The designer's like, very exciting to make Coruscant. The whole planet's a city. You know, doesn't go into like the, the absurdity of that statement. The whole planet is one city, <laughs> is the direct wording, yeah. which is not possible. Uh, if, if you, it just sprawls until it filled the whole planet, right? Yeah, but then how. What, I, yes. what would downtown Coruscant be? It would be on one hemisphere. It would be on one. Right, but eventually it would turn into Uptown Coruscant, would it not? Um, you definitely have to change your way of thinking. <laughs> yeah. 
You know what I mean? You have to rethink what a city is. <laughs> but can a city sprawl to fill a whole planet without dividing itself into multiple cities? You you say yes? Well, it's not me saying yes. It's it is what it is. It happened. <laughs> saying that Coruscant isn't one big city is like saying that uh those droids didn't explode. Yeah, they did. They did. I mean, it, it is what happened. The planet is a city that covers the whole face of the planet. So yeah. the concept of uptown and downtown is an outmoded way of thinking of what a city can be. It's you're the problem, you're Griffin. The problem. Yeah, as usual. Anyway, the commercials had a pizza so was, delivery lady and which, Colonel Sanders and the Taco Bell Chihuahua teaming what, what's, up. Do you remember what city was which place? Um, Would have been great if they changed it to uh, Coruscant Fried Chicken. <laughs> that that, that would have been great. If I'm not and pizza and Pizza Hut should have just been Pizza Hut what, with the two T's, with two T's. Yeah, I like that. And what's the other one? Taco Bell. Taco, Taco Bell, Bell should have been. Uh, mm. What What's a fun thing from this movie? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a whole other episode. What's a fun thing from this movie? It's <laughs> a great game. Um, no, I Taco, don't. Taco Mall. Like Darth Maul. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. Is that 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 does take place on Coruscant, right? No, it does yes, it does. No, I'm sorry. On Naboo, he can go wherever he wants. <laughs> That's true. No, well, that we we did talk about last week how Darth Maul and Darth Sidious seem to share an apartment with a balcony <laughs> <laughs> on Coruscant. Nothing like nothing outrageous, but you know, a nice apartment a nice with a little, little balcony. Yeah. It's just nice to own a place. You yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was one thing that George Lucas said in the in the commentary that um really struck me as an interesting comment um cuz he meant it clearly in one way but the way i heard oh, yeah. the way i heard it uh i think was interesting um he said uh i've always wanted to make a race film uh and uh he was referring to the pod race right right, right. he yeah. was saying like a, this is yeah. like this is like my race film this is like a 20 minute race film in here i would argue that some would say he did make a race film. <laughs> Different definition. I mean, certainly that that was the big reaction to it mm-hmm. was you made a race film. Oh, and we've we've talked about that a lot already. On but isn't show. it interesting yeah. that he would even use those terms? He would yes. say a racing film, yep. a race film, because that's a real term mm-hmm. uh, from film history. A race picture. Of, yeah. Um, talk, talking about the pod race quickly, I'm looking at some of my notes here. Some of the most egregious lines that George threw out that I, I took note of. There's the point where Ben Quadranos' uh, engines yes, blow up. Yes, yes, I remember this point. And George sort of explains. He goes, uh, "So what's happening here is that Ben Quadranos has his like you know his quad like he like quad throws up all these yes. yeah quad coupling and yeah. they b- blow a rotary cuff and so this is exploding yeah. and uh, and acknowledges it, that this might be difficult for audiences to ingest. He says yes. he says uh, audiences won't understand what's happening here at all. But if you lived on Tatooine, you would understand what was happening. I was I wanted to talk about that. It's quite yeah. a moment that he says that. Um, yeah. and then. Does not address what he means by lived on Tatooine. But right. I mean, he, he's saying like within the fictional universe, of mm-hmm. course, this is a commonplace pod yeah. race accident. Yes. As if, you know, unfortunately the film didn't screen on Tatooine. So, we, you know, he never got to uh, play to that audience. But it also feels like a humble brag to me of like, my imagination is so great. <laughs> the concepts I've thrown out don't make sense unless you're a fictional character within the world I created. Where, in fact, almost everything in The Phantom Menace has some sort of real-world parallel. Absolutely. Much like the chance cube. Yeah, the chance cube. Is, is very much like flipping a coin to decide No, something. it's very much like 
a human like way of deciding between two things: rolling a chance cube, rolling yeah. a chance cube, like the thing that we all do every day. And we all own chance cubes. Yeah, we might not know the mechanics of a pod racer perfectly, it's, but it's like well, I've seen a it's, fucking car accident, engine blows it's up. It's Formula One. Like yeah. that's all it is. That's all pod racing is, well, but, and Ben Hur and things like that. But, it's but just, you wouldn't understand it unless you lived on Tatooine. When I, I mean Ben Quadranero, so he was just you know when he decided to be a pod racer, they were like Quad, you, you got to have four engines. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else has two, but you're gonna need to have four with a name like Quadraneros, or is it a family of four-engined pod racers, like you know the Quadraneros family? Oh, they name themselves after the engines. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that is that what it is? Or I, I, or does the concept, it, like in the same way that like uh, a family invents a certain concept far sure, back? Right. Does the concept they just of name it out after themselves? Four quadrants <laughs> go back to the first Quadraneros. They were yeah. like. How many? Oh, I this many engines. I don't know how to count it. Oh, uh, what's your like, name? What's your name? Quad, quadrineros. We'll make quad. That will be the base of one. Okay, let's. We should say if we took one away, how much that would be, and then that and that and that. Right. Let's have a numbering system. Is it true we call that numbering? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> this is we're really going back to the primordial yeah. sort of era. Yeah. <laughs> ben Quadrineros. Who who is it? We well, we haven't talked about. What's the, the funniest joke in the movie? Oh. That's a good question. Is it Qui-Gon grabbing uh, Jar Jar's tongue, which they, George Lucas cites in the movie as something he came up with that was brilliant and relieved the tension? It, and they all talk about how much they cracked up filming it. Yeah, which it yeah. makes no sense to me because how it's it's digital. How did they crack up filming it? I don't understand. Well, the You're, idea of, of Liam Neeson reaching out and grabbing something in the air was apparently that funny that right. on a tense day of filming, they finally were like, we can do this. And this it's, they don't address it. why filming was tense. They don't really say why it was a hard day, but they do say it was a hard day and that really helped uh, burst the balloon. Well, can I throw out a theory? And I don't know if they were made aware of this while filming or if it only became clear to the actors after the fact. Go ahead. Uh, but knowing how much of a uh, meticulous tech head uh, old Georgie Porgy is, I think they probably knew what they were signing up for. In addition to, you know, Terrence Stamp's uh, complaints that he had to act against a ping pong ball, that he didn't get to finger blast 14-year-old Natalie Portman. Another thing that I think w- was bothering the actors very early in the commentary when they're uh, entering the trade trip, which we discussed at length in episode one yep. of this podcast, mm. um, he mentioned that uh, a lot of the sets are built out of wood. Yeah. I think I, I don't remember who says this, Rick, Rick McCollum maybe. He said a lot of sets are built out of wood, and of course they're meant to be metal in real life, and we didn't like the creaking sounds that the wood made. So 85% of the dialogue <laughs> yes. in this movie yes. was dubbed later. He does. He does say 85%. Mm-hmm. He doesn't address whether that's, that's unusual or not, but it's a little unusual. That's what you get from taking your cue from the middle pig. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Building out of wood. <laughs> straw absorbs sound much better. straw. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, but for those, uh, so it must have been fun for the actors. Yeah, come back and record all the dialogue again, yeah, please. So, so what that means is you're on set, you're doing scenes with other people, you're trying to find emotional connection, you're picking the readings that make sense to your environment. Right. You know, living honestly in the moment, shoot all that, and then like 18 months later, yeah. George calls you up. You go into a booth by yourself, much like the room where we're recording this podcast. You talk into a microphone. You get some workaday pig like producer Ben working the ones and zeros. 
and they just go, okay, and we're going to do this one line at a time, beep, 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 and you have to match up the exact way yeah. in which your yeah, lips Yeah, they're playing move. the footage for you. So it's not even come up with the best line reading you have today. You have to try to replicate the mood you were in, do it out of context, in a bubble. Yeah. It's very, very tough to do. And most movies, when they're scenes that are ADR'd in later, you can tell because they feel kind of weird emotionally. Yeah. Right. But most films, it's only like a handful of lines yeah, Or during an action scene, something where there'd be a lot of noise, something yeah. like that. Yeah. 85% of the dialogue in this movie is ADR'd, which is why no character in the film ever sounds like they're actually talking to another person. Right. It well, sounds like a series reason. of monologues. Yeah. And you've harped on a lot about Natalie Portman's voice in this movie. Yes. Connor points out that she Comiti. had an accent that was thrown out. I will not have this disgust in a committee. But that feels like a 14-year-old who's like, I gotta say it the same. I gotta match up with the lips. Right. It's, almost, it's too not, enunciated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's a terrible job. Well, you know, what can I tell you, Griffin? It's what happened. And the film is like music anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you're saying a lot. The major flaw in the movie is there's too much wood in in the design in the of it. It's it's literally yeah. to the, 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 the base. acting is wooden, like the sets, <laughs> and one caused the other. Terrence right. Stamp had wood. That's the only reason he came to set because he had morning wood. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the movie starts with a joke pretty pretty early. Oh, so on. yeah, we we were just trying to discuss the funniest yeah. part of the movie, right? Um, well, let's just try and list as many jokes. The, as the we negotiations can were short. Is that the yeah. joke you're thinking? Negotiations of? were no, short. No, that that probably is the most successful. Uh, he, joke. he delivers it like a joke. Yeah. Like he's like, "Well, you're right." He's like, "I'm going to tell right a joke right thing. now." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Qui Gon is just like, you know, whatever. There's a joke before that, though. Okay. Um, uh, doesn't he say, "I have a very bad feeling"? He like does. This? I have, yep. and, and Lucas says it like there, there. There's a repeating motif in the film, and I have a bad, and it's a funnier one. Well, he that, even says uh, that repeats throughout all the Star Wars movies, which is like, once again, don't fucking write jokes that you think will be funny five movies from now. You've only made one film, George. This is the start of a franchise. I've don't load up your buffet plate too much. I have a bad feeling about him foreshadowing things fucking six movies in advance. Now, what are some other funny jokes, Connor? Well, I, there's one I'm forgetting now. Maybe you'll remember. I know that there's at least one. I think there's a, there's two jokes that Jar Jar makes that are uh, borrowed from pop culture. Okay. I can't remember what the first one is. I know he says, excuse me. He says, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, which... Wayne's World didn't invent Excuse Me, but it's, they did it's, sort of... It's a thing, though. Popularized yeah. it. It's a, it's they, a, they a common pun. Yeah. They certainly uh, uh, had their stamp on it. Yeah. Um, but I think there's another one that I discovered this time that I'm blanking on now, that where Jar Jar makes a joke that is like a uh, a joke from something else. You're probably I, right. I can tell you, the moment I definitely laughed the hardest at upon seeing the film in theaters mm-hmm. as as a, a, a 10-year-old. And just, just could you let Connor know what your review of the film was coming out age 10 of seeing the first, uh, yeah, seeing Phantom Menace? Uh, best movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Right. Yeah? Yeah. Anyway. Well, the movie was designed for you. Yeah, it, it was. Although I was the target George audience. Lucas does say during the scene where uh, Jar Jar numbs his tongue on the uh, pod race connector thingy that that scene is alarming for children and the children react to it badly. Which, like, he's he, he's he's talking about children like they're like little wood lice under his like microscope. He's like, you never can predict what happens. You know, I, I children think, don't like that scene. I think his phrasing was it's almost unbearably tense. It's <laughs> like they see his hand inaccurate. is going in the motor and he's reaching for the thing and they know that an accident's about to happen. He's going to get electrocuted. Yeah. Did he watch that scene with like a bunch of children like at a pantomime show? Because I can imagine going, no, don't do it. Because like I have never had any reaction yeah. to that scene whatsoever. Well, I was going to say, the, the moment I laughed at Harris upon seeing the film was definitely when Captain Tarpal says, oh, Jaja, you say in big doo-doo now. That killed at, me. At 10-year-old Griffin. Right. 10-year-old Griffin. He does Griffin. say doo-doo. Do you like it now? 
Do I like that joke? You're, you're smiling pretty big. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Captain Tarples is a pretty cool dude. He is funny because <laughs> he's a pretty cool. Hold dude. on, hold on. I don't want to lose this moment where Griffin is genuinely regressing. <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty cool dude. <laughs> he's a cool dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that's funny about Captain Tarples that I only learned recently <laughs> upon downloading the Star Wars trading card app on my phone yeah. is that during the final battle, Jar Jar technically outranks him. He's been promoted to the rank of general. I forgot Jeez. about this. And so the Captain Tarples, who you know coordinates a very successful, I would say, you know, defiance of the Trade Federation, is supposed to be answering to Jar Jar Binks. And seems to know what even, he's doing. He yeah. hasn't even put on a military. He's still wearing his, like, flared trousers <laughs> and a boo vest that he wears throughout the film. Well, as George makes very clear on the commentary, Jar Jar's victory are all by accident. Right, yes. He says, I view this as like a Buster Keaton routine. It's a classic slapstick. When he knocks open the uh, Gungan uh, grenade vat. Which, of course, you know... Ouch time. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) The thing we all remember about Buster Keaton and loved about him first and foremost was that he never stopped talking. That was the best... If you want Jar Jar to be a Buster Keaton-esque figure, he keeps on saying, I, I view Jar Jar as like oh, a silent film comedian. Wasn't How Rude, How Rude was a catchphrase from what? <laughs> how, wasn't rude. That, how, how Rude? How Rude. Wasn't, wasn't that from like a uh, TGIF show or something? Wasn't there oh, someone? That's the, you think that's the oh, other? Yes, oh, you're yes. absolutely right. Yeah. What you're show is How Rude a catchphrase Fuck. from? I don't know. It was it, a, a, a kid on a show like that said that. Yeah, yeah. it was like the little kid so said that's another, because they really yeah. tried hard with How Rude being a catchphrase yeah. for Jar Jar. Yeah, he says it. A bunch of times. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not best joke in the film, but best joke in the commentary. There's a point in the commentary where it's the... Um, Full uh, House. Producer. Full House. Oh, it's, of course, Produce. of course. It's a... It's a... It's a... San Francisco-based show. It's obviously going to seep into... It's true. Yeah, he's a Bay Area man. It's yeah. too bad that Jar Jar Binks never says, you got it, dude. So <laughs> that would have been good if he'd, if he'd like continued the motif. Actually, if he was going to lift something from TGIF, did I do that is the phrase that would best fit Jar Jar. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. After he trips and breaks something. Yes. Rather yeah. than... Um, uh, comparing him to Buster Keaton, he should have compared yeah. him to Urkel because he is a lot like Urkel in that he won't go away and he is like yeah. excessively dominant in the plot for no good reason. And he embarrasses all black people. <laughs> That's the other way that he's like Urkel. Uh, we haven't, you've done so much Nemoidian accents. We haven't really done your Jar Jar. I yet. don't have a good Jar Jar. Yeah. That's the problem. My Nemoidian is spot on. It is. His, his Nemoidian's really good. And, and Let's hear it. Uh, is that uh, illegal? <laughs> Uh, that's pretty good. Thank you. Um, there's a point in the commentary where he says that at, at, when they were trying to figure out what the voice of the Nemoidians was, they did a temp track where they had them do like ESPN commentator voices, mm-hmm. and then Which decided ended up using that in the pod race. Yeah, um, that would have been interesting too. Yeah, if it had been like if the Nemoidians had been like Craig Kilborn and uh, Dan Patrick yeah. from Sports Center. Uh, well, I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that that would have been funny. Yeah, yeah. That would have been make... that would have been a better stereotype. If you can make fun of a race, make fun of white people. Yeah, make fun of white sportscasters yeah. from the nineties. Yeah, they could use it. Uh, best joke okay. in the commentary, not the film, is there's a point where it's it's uh, right before Darth Maul, I think, shows up when it's the Naboo Royal Starship. Yeah. and the sands building around it, and they know they need to get to the ship. And over that, I don't remember who it was on the commentary says, uh, I remember that day when we were filming on set, someone asked me what we were having for lunch, and I said, uh, sandwiches. So that was a funny joke. Uh, whoever that was, Ben Burt, Rick McCollum. I think probably Rick McCollum. Uh, Dennis Franz. Franz. Dennis Franz, Franz, Franz yeah. Ferdinand, Dennis Franz Ferdinand. Uh, was so proud of that joke on the day. That it made its way. 
to audio. He, he noted had to repeat it, down. it yeah. two years yeah. later. Yeah. Two years after the release he of the film. He wished there had been a camera, maybe a making of camera on him at that very moment. And he, he regretted it. Yeah. yeah. So he was like. He had to repeat that joke. Yeah. Sandwiches. This is another point that's interesting. So uh, the commentary was recorded two years after the film was released because it first came out only on VHS. The DVD release was until 2001. The film was in production for a very, very long period of time because they keep on making clear across the commentary that there are scenes that are shot a year after principal photography ended. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Many scenes where he's like, this was actually shot 18 months later. Yeah. yeah. So people keep on going, oh, you know, when people like to shit on the Phantom Mass, they go, oh, these basic story problems, you know, it's screenwriting 101. You don't do this, have this, less of this, more of this, whatever it is. It's not like he shot it and went perfect. He shot it, oh, yeah. put yeah. together a rough assembly, looked at it, went, we need more stuff, shot 40 more fi- minutes of footage. Arguably some of the worst scenes in the film were shot well, a year Remind later. me some of the scenes that he included. He also says, like, this scene was in and out. He says it about, yeah. you know, like, this scene was in the first cut, and then I took it out, and they, the scene of, it's, it's a lot of it has some emotional scenes, like, about Anakin leaving the his most, mother. Yeah. The most surprising thing was to hear when he talks about, there's a part where they go back and rather than going back to the Gungan city underwater, they just go to a clearing in the you, woods. But you see Jar Jar just get out of the water and he's like, they're not down there. And he's like, this way we didn't have to go down and see all that. I'm like, <laughs> this whole movie is nothing but spectacle. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a weird thing. Like, ugh, we don't want to show that all again. Like, just seeing him get out of the water saying, no, they're not going Well, weird to pinch pennies there. Like, yeah. It's yeah. like the rest of the film, you're splurging. You're already shooting in Italy, like, and in you've the already, finest yeah. Roman And you've already columns. digitally built what that world looks yeah, like. Yeah, right. Just yeah. drop so them back in. having a scene where he's like, they're gone. Yeah. Could have been intriguing, maybe, as opposed to just like, Mr. Lucas, no, not there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he just says, like, oh, I know where they are, sacred place, right well, over here. A sacred place. <laughs> That's pretty good, Jagger. Yeah. Um, uh, one of my favorite improv shows, I haven't, I, it's sort of a notorious thing with improv shows, like, oh, when are you going to do your Star Wars? Like, Star Wars comes up a lot. Yeah. And people who haven't seen Star Wars but do improv are like, ugh. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. it always comes up. But there was a stepfather show. That I didn't initiate it being a Star Wars thing, but someone else did, and it became a thing. And I did a walk-on where I was quiet for a long time. I just walked into a room, and they were doing a, a whole scene. And I didn't say anything for a long time, and then someone said, wait, who's that guy? And I went, oh, me so <laughs> and, and, uh, and then it just was a tag run of just, from that point on, it was just Jar Jar Binks in various scenes, because every scene I would just react. I was like, wow! <laughs> you know, just like, oh, no, I'm so stepped in shit! <laughs> and it was, I can see how it might have been fun at the time to give yourself that fully to something that stupid. Yeah. Oh, Jar Jar must have been a ball to play. Yeah, yeah. Ahmed Best of Stomp. Yeah, that exactly. Yeah. He was a performer on Stomp. Like he yeah. wasn't even getting to say dialogue on stage. So they were like another weird thing. Buster Keaton. He hires a silent performer, yeah. and then he gives him reams of dialogue. Right. And right. like you said, also always over other dialogue. Almost like he's just sort of chattering away in the background as everyone else is trying to figure things out. And apparently, according to the commentary, there's a scene cut of him bouncing around with the droids in the bottom of the Naboo starfighter. There was like a whole scene. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Where I assume like droids keep popping out of like walls and doors. And he's like, whoa, what are you? And, and yeah, that, I wish we had that had been included. My favorite part of the commentary is they keep on saying things like, we just felt like that was a little too much. <laughs> or like the first cut of this scene when the animators brought to us, Jar Jar was overacting a little, so we had to tone it down. It's like, this is the toned down version? I can believe yeah. it, too. This is you yeah. reining it in? 
Yeah, I mean, there may have been versions where Jar Jar's eyes do like Tex Avery, like they <laughs> pop out and grow huge. They may have that may have been the one victory of physics in the movie. Is yeah, that like right. we will we we'll will bind in. this yes. character to the laws of physics in this universe. When he first sees Padme, his tongue rolls out onto the floor, and then he does a wolf whistle, and steam comes. Well, out that of his was ears. the initial when Terrence Stamp was playing yeah, the character right. before he refused to do right. any more lines. So. I, yeah. I would say um, two things regarding. Uh-huh. Uh, comedy and its relationship to the Phantom Menace in terms of both success and failure. Because not a, a great comedy. As a comedy, it doesn't work that well. Absolutely. I'll say this. Yeah. For I actually respect the film for how big its failings are. Mm-hmm. I think they're bold choices. I think it was bold, given the buildup for this movie, that George Lucas, who did not have a reputation for, like, you know what he's great at, is coming up with uh, madcap slapstick... <laughs> Character, characters like, like he there wasn't like he could point to and say like look at all of yeah, the yeah THX 1138 it's just pratfall let's look at all the times that he's been great at doing this kind of comedy um that he decided with all the anticipation with the one guaranteed home run knock it out of the park this is gonna be a smash hit movie yeah he was like I'm gonna do this character this way right to me In that this is much of the movie that is a baller move mm-hmm. uh on par with it, to me, it would be as if instead of making a new Star Wars movie, George Lucas had said, I'm going to do a stadium tour uh, where I do two hours of stand up. <laughs> I'm only going to play stadiums. And it's going to be like, basically, it's going to be like Eddie Murphy Raw, <laughs> but with me. You got to talk about sex and you know, like, You'd be like, whoa, what's that's pretty <laughs> that, ballsy. That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah that I is. think the fact that. He, it, I think it was a mistake for the movie, but I do have some respect for the fact that he was like, this is what I think is good. I'm going to do it. I think it um, it speaks to the fact that this is one, of, even though it has distribution deal from 20th Century Fox, mm-hmm. this is an indie movie. It yeah, is self-financed. We've, we've talked, talked about, about that, that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, and it was done with the full control of an artist saying, this Absolutely. is what I want the movie to make. Yep. Um, the thing that I think would have fixed this movie is uh, rather than putting all your comedy chips into this Buster Keaton slapstick uh, digital character, um, if there had been a character in this movie who was charming and roguish and who undercut yeah. the movie. Who maybe sort of poked fun at a little bit of the self-seriousness of the other characters. I think there's a candidate for this. I've spoken to both of you mm-hmm. about this prior to this. That yeah. Captain Panaka, uh, if that character had been played by any comedian that you like, picture anyone. We were throwing sure. out names. The first name that popped into my head was Vince Vaughn. Yep. Just because I was thinking, it doesn't even have to be, like, a lot of people don't like Vince Vaughn. But, but, thinking, but at that point in time, he was, you know, yeah. just just emerging in a big yeah, way. Yeah. yeah. But I think if you put him into that role, um, another name we threw out was, like, Bernie Mac. If Bernie yep. Mac, Bernie Mac would destroy role. it. And because basically that character spends most of the movie saying... This is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should do this. Yep. Which is a great angle for a comic character to have to be like, uh, listen, this is a bad idea. I didn't sign up for this. Right. Um, how popular would a character be in a movie like this mm. if he or she was like, listen, sister, I'm just in it for the money. I got to get out of here. <laughs> I got other stuff I got to do. I don't want to be in a Star Wars adventure. I got my own stuff going on. Absolutely. I think if you cast someone charming and likable and allowed them to kind of say, you know, this is bullshit. I don't like being in a Star Wars adventure. I got to go live my life. And then you keep wrangling him back into it. He's like, well, here I go again. 
Yeah, that sounds like that would be the key character in a Star Wars. Yeah, film. maybe the almost the fulcrum point for a lot of characters who are much more idealistic. And it doesn't have to just be a comic character. You could have given maybe Captain Panaka and uh, uh, Queen Amidala could have had a little fling or something. That'd be great. I, I think Terrence Stamp just entered into the running again. If that's the case, yeah, he's, yeah, he, he's going to have some harsh agents, words for you. His I've, agents are calling. That's right. I've written a list of jokes, <laughs> roguish jokes. Terrence Stamp's a very funny actor. I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't be, be really down funny. on Terrence yeah. Stamp. Um, you tell him I'm coming. What if? <laughs> no, but that, that is a good. It's point. a great movie, David. You way. were saying right before we started recording that Jar Jar, uh, in at no point in the film does anything on no. purpose that actually advances the he plot. He shows absolutely the only skill he shows is knowing how to quickly get to the Gungan sacred place right. in the process of one edit, which is impressive. Apart from that, he does nothing that's good. So George was operating under the assumption that a comic relief character has to be all comedic. You know mm. that he has to be the fool. That he has right. to be this false staffy and idiot. It, but Falstaff even turns out to be a little more cunning and, and sharp. Falstaff's got a bit of brain between right. his and ears. Right, and he ends yeah. up being a, uh, a character with pathos. Which yes, absolutely. Maybe that's a future direction for this character. That yeah. Maybe he could be uh, a, fo- a focus, not in a big way, but in some small a, way of, of maybe... A tragic plot point. Yeah, I mean, this movie sets a lot of balls in motion. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, Gungan energy balls. Yeah. And uh, on the commentary, it ends by Lucas saying, you know, we've killed one of the villains, but it doesn't mean we've killed the main villain. That's true. Big tease for episode two. Yeah. Fingers crossed. And, um, uh, and the main villain is... Uh, Darth Sidious? Mm-hmm. And remember the scene where uh, he's on the um, hologram and he's walking? The, hol- yeah. the spider table? And they act on the commentary and they're like, and we have this this great reveal <laughs> of the little walking holographic You're projector. like, how's the hologram walking? Yeah, and, and they're like, you out. know, people people watch this movie and for one second they are confused as to how this thing is walking before we the great reveal of the holographic yeah. uh, walkie thingy. Uh, but Connor, you do you do raise a great point that even like Buster Keaton was like a very tragic figure in all of his films, and there was a lot of pathos there, and yeah. he was kind of silent. And he was a guy who was trying his best and would fail often, but was always coming from the best intentions. Jar Jar is just a comedic device, and if you're saying someone like Captain Panaka, who actually has a lot of purpose within the story, but nothing else, has no yeah. character developed, yeah. but is important to all the main actions of the film. If you gave him some personality, if you made him be funny in a way that's human, is grounded in how you would react in that situation, but also made him a fully rounded human being with perhaps a love interest, and, yeah. you know, motivations of his own. He's just a utility player in this. And it's weird because he's arguably, this is, you know, last night was like the fifth time I've watched this movie yep. in the last yep. month. Yep. And every time I'm surprised. It was a nice break, actually, to have yeah, the commentary. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, every time I'm surprised by how large a character Captain Pinnock is, I always forget because he's not thought of as being a primary character. He's arguably like the sixth lead in the movie. Yeah. He's in a lot of it. He's like, on screen a lot. Yeah. He advances the plot a lot. He's like a big motivator. Yeah. But he's so bland and so he's undeveloped. He's a real straight arrow. He's yeah. just like a dude throwing out expository dialogue. That was a fascinating moment for me was there's the point where he's talking about the scene at the Skywalker home, Shmi's Skywalker's uh, uh, kitchen table. Yeah. And they're setting up all the things. Well, we need a new engine, a uh, hyperdrive. Well, we need to get off this planet. Well, there's a pod race. And he goes, this is the pointer scene. Every movie has a big pointer scene where you have all this expository information that you have to get out. And it isn't fun and it's really annoying. And it's the hardest one to do well because you're afraid of losing the audience and boring them. Mm-hmm. He goes, a great example, probably the perfect pointer scene is Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he throws out his own movie as a perfect pointer scene, but he goes, this was the tough one to get through. And the reality is every scene in The Phantom Menace is a pointer scene. That is absolutely the case. And Captain Panaka is a pointer character. All he does is say stuff that anyone could say, that a fucking Apple talk could say, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, you could replace him with Siri. Yes. You could re- you could merge 
I would say a good dozen of the characters in this film into one character, mm-hmm. like, and just have that character deliver all the information. Because there's Sayo Bibble, yeah. there's Rick Olier, and there's yeah. like you know even Watto. Honestly, yeah, he's now Watto's fun. Um, my roommate watched it with me last night. Uh-huh. Uh, she is a computer programmer. Yes, she was sitting on the couch trying to program uh, an app while I was watching the commentary, and she kept on like lifting her head up and going like, "What? What the fuck did he just say?" But her big analysis, which I think is really interesting is that um, the biggest theme that comes up in the commentary is George saying, well, you know, I wanted to do this, but I thought I'd lose the audience, so I had to do this instead. Or saying, you know, I did put this scene in so the audience could understand it. Like, all of his decisions he's putting on the audience's shoulder. He's saying that he made a movie just for you. Yeah. It isn't even necessarily yeah. the movie he wanted to make. Like, on one hand, it's self-financed. Things like Jar Jar are, like, something he felt very strongly about and put mm-hmm. in. But it also sounds like it's him making these decisions based on what he thinks the audience wants out of him. And trying to make a movie explicitly for other people, he seems to have made a movie that no one right. really likes. It's by, it's by, it's for everyone and for no one. And that builds myself. to this larger right. point that my roommate kept on saying, which is like, he just doesn't understand human beings anymore. Anymore. And I was like, well, uh, American Graffiti, because she originally was like, he just doesn't understand human beings. I was like, he used to make really good humanistic films. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, but I, you know, he's just rich and he lives in seclusion and a ranch by himself. And he's surrounded by people who just say yes to whatever he does because they all work for him. Yeah. And he goes, make Jar Jar sillier. And they go, okay, fine. I guess you're a genius. Yeah, okay. And the film is like aliens trying to make a movie based on what they think humans want. Like trying to make a blockbuster for Having ingested all like popular filmmaking. Yes. Starting with like Flash Gordon, starting with the 1930s sort of serials. Yes. Right. Um, Which which brings me to my analysis this week on maybe – what this movie's about? Please. Maybe it's like his like anthropological study of humans, or just of of the things that bind us, of biology and physics. Maybe this is like his microcosmos. Like he's just like I don't understand how things talk to each other and have emotions and feel. That's why he cut all his. Emotions did I get out. it right? He's he's showing you know. He's asking. Did us. I get it? He's like I don't know. Did I capture this right? Yeah, Connor. I want to direct you to something. Uh, because you guys are obviously frustrated because you you're waiting for the next things to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is one thing. It's sort of a prequel to – it's not canon, but uh-huh. it was an official in a Star Wars related thing. Okay. Uh, have you ever seen George R. Binks by Tony Millionaire? No. Okay. I want you to try and find it. It's like a six or seven page story about Jar Jar Binks and his father, George R. Binks. <laughs> Um, and <laughs> his father is like a fucking hero. He's like this Gungan, like, legend, Gungan yeah. sea captain, like catching these huge like sea monsters and stuff. And his son Jar Jar is an idiot, and he's ashamed of him. <laughs> sure, as he and, would be, as uh, the entire Gungan nation eventually is, <laughs> <laughs> as he is exiled. And. It really is amazing that this was allowed to be published. It was published in like a Star Wars Tales comic book. So it's not canon, but I think it's close enough. Uh-huh. Um, but you should seek it out because I think it does offer a, a fuller perspective on the world of uh, of this film. Yeah. And, and speaking of the world. I'm definitely going to seek this out. Speaking of the world, we didn't even talk about this because it's just so interesting to talk about. 75% of the commentary is him and his team outlining how few elements within each shot are actually real. It's true. Yeah. 
And it's mostly just him going, um, this is fascinating because that's the only real actor, and then that was shot as a model, and then right. this was a location. Here we, we only it. had a door, he right. says Right, and at he's one like point. so proud of the fact that he was like cobbling together a reality from disparate elements that were never in the same room at the same time. And there's one line where he goes, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because almost none of it is real. Yeah. Which was like, wow. Yeah, I think I think you're referring to when the surface, the the submarine thing surfaces onto Naboo. He He's, says this uh, is entirely animated. Yeah, I found, this is the direct quote. He goes, this, this shot right here is completely digital. And then he just pauses and he goes, no reality at all. Right. Yeah. There you go. Much like his description of a race film, they sound, no reality at all is pretty fascinating. They sound, He's almost like the lawnmower man. <laughs> they sound dismayed anytime they're talking about how they filmed in a real location, but then we had to match the sunlight or we had to do that. Like, like, I remember one person was talking about how they filmed. It's one of those like the queen and her little counselor filming like in this real palace in Italy or someplace. Uh, or Spain, wherever they filmed it's it. It's Italy. Italy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, yeah, unfortunately, like, there were candel- candelabras everywhere, and we had to digitally erase all those. And it's said with, not just like, yeah, it, this is something we had to do. It was like, <laughs> unfortunately, they, they say it to you as if, it's, here's the bad news. When we filmed this, there were candelabras, and we had to erase them all. He's talking like there are, like, spiders. Yeah, as, <laughs> if, as if we, the listener, will be upset to find out that they had to do all this work to make a Star Wars movie. To me, that would be like saying, well, unfortunately, these characters aren't real. We had to hire these actors to play them. <laughs> it's just like, that's not unfortunately. That's just you're making a movie. That is the process of filmmaking. Or it's not like candelabras that you had to digitally erase is so horrible. Yeah. Like, unfortunately, we filmed in this place and there was there was human fecal matter <laughs> right. smeared all over the walls. A so murder just, had just was, occurred. Yeah, unfortunately, there were dead bodies when we filmed and we had to, and that was really depressing. The presence of candelabras <laughs> that they digitally erased should not be the source of such dismay on the part of the people who made this movie. It's just part of what happened. The whole movie takes place in space yeah. and alien galaxies. Why erasing <laughs> candelabras is a bigger bummer than inventing a whole underground city, I don't understand. Do you have a take, to wrap up our podcast, do you have a take on what you think this movie is about? Yeah. Um, it is about... Uh, <laughs> It is about a political power play uh, in which uh, our heroes are uh, unwitting pawns. Okay. So it's about good people being manipulated. Um, by forces they can't understand. By forces they, phantom menace. By forces they can't understand. Um, on one hand, some of them are uh, man-made forces. Uh, um bureaucracy and politics there's mm-hmm. political yeah. uh, manipulation using the trade federation to provoke a reaction so that right. they, this can happen but on a on a uh let's say that's physics on a uh, metaphysical scale yeah. yeah but then on another scale we have a virgin birth yes yeah. and a blood disease mm-hmm. yeah a magic blood disease and this is a this is an x factor right so there are uh the the ma- machinations of Man making plans, mm-hmm. uh, uh, villains that have yet to unveil their agenda. But we also see uh, something that is beyond that the control, so, something that happened that is a force to be reckoned with. Tangible reality versus forces we feel, both good and bad. Yeah, and, and since this is the beginning of a saga, we don't need to understand all of it, but we know that Anakin Skywalker is an important figure. Clearly, yeah. Otherwise, uh, why would you devote this much screen time to an eight-year-old boy? And 
these things are going to have consequences on both ends. Mm-hmm. And I think we ha- we have we end with a victory. It's true. But there's been loss, and there is a portent of uh, perhaps terrible things to come. Who knows? We'll never get to find out. Uh, I I don't know. I feel like I mean this is a very successful movie. I feel like the the we've seen so many different uh, um, you know Twin Peaks is coming back. <laughs> Uh, That's true. The, the X Files is the coming X-Files back. Coming 24. Yeah. I feel like yeah. we were primed for uh, some sort of uh, reboot, certainly. Yeah. And as we pointed out last week, Disney did pay several billion dollars to buy Lucasfilm. You have to think. Yeah. I mean, a Star Wars reboot is somewhere within their plans. Right. Um, a couple uh, lines just to wrap this up that I wrote down that I just want to read uh, verbatim. Please do. Because uh, they jumped out to me. Uh, there's a point where uh, when the Jedis are trying to break through the uh, door of the Trade Federation ship, and he talks about how it's subverting, making the human creatures, the invaders, and putting mm-hmm. all the monsters and the robots on the other side afraid. And he went, I just wanted to make this scene about Jedi Godzillas. He does say that. Uh, that jumped out to me. Yep. There's another line where he says, uh, all the decisions in this film are musical. Even when there's no music, that's musical. John Cage? Yep. Uh... This is one, I don't even remember what it was in reference to. It could have been anything where he just goes, so little of this is real. <laughs> was he talking about the film? Like so, sand through his fingers. Uh, there's a scene where they're uh, reboarding the uh, Naboo Royal Starship. And he explains how he wanted to give the movie uh, more of a documentary feel. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He tried to what? shoot it like it was a documentary. <laughs> More than what? More than other movies. <laughs> I guess. So he, he brags about how he had Jar Jar kind of out of frame, so it felt like it was a real, a real tangible thing that he was shooting on set that he actually had to frame around. Um, yeah, these are these are my last two. Okay. Uh, one is that when they're talking about the animators working on the Gungan team, he if one of the animators goes. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, most of the animators were working on Jar Jar. We had a much smaller team working on The Boss. They refer to Boss Nass as The, the boss. boss. Yeah. Or uh, they could have been referring, we don't know, they could have been referring to the cutting room floor scene with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> was he in the scene where Jar Jar avoids all the droids uh, down in the Starfighter? Was yeah. he there the too? Avoid all those droids! How many there are? One, two, one, two, three, four! Yeah, um, so we, we'll never know. We'll never know. And, and finally. My favorite revelation in the entire commentary track. When discussing with the special effects team the physics of Watto and how a creature could have such a big belly. And, and be, such small wings. Yes. And be uh, propelled through the air on yeah, such yeah. small wings. George said, I don't know. Just imagine there's helium in his belly or something. Hilarious. Then why why isn't his voice funnier? Yep. <laughs> His voice is pretty funny, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, but if it was on Helium, it would be funnier, right? Yeah, definitely funnier. I have a great faith in the boy. Now, I, I may be misquoting, but yeah, well, cause one of the controversies <sighs> of Watto is the that a lot of people perceive Watto as like a Jewish. Yes, a, mer- uh, a Jewish mer- merchant. Yes. merchant. We haven't gotten dug into this yeah. much yet, but yes. A yeah. Shylock figure. I could be wrong about this, but I seem to recall that, that a defense was offered up for this was, uh, something something along the lines of like we always thought he was like a greedy Italian guy or something. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I may be making that up. 
But I seem to recall that Justin <laughs> should be. No, something. he's not Jewish. He's not Jewish. He's a greedy Italian. <laughs> he's like a Guido, you know? Like a... <laughs> One of those grease balls. There is, I mean, it goes to this point of, of him not understanding humanity. The whole film feels like it's about. Like how fascinated he is by other cultures. I don't think he's consciously mocking other cultures, no. but he's so weirded out and he views everyone other than him as an other. Yes, and he's fascinated by the other. And part of the problem is, um, I think that I I never I never fully accepted the the people who jump to the 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 Jar Jar Binks is racist. That's a racist thing, mm-hmm. and it's automatically like a step and fetch it type character. Um, I never fully am on board with that. I think the problems with the character are more fundamentally that the character's not funny enough. <laughs> sure. Uh, that I don't think there's a single criticism of Jar Jar Binks' character that you couldn't apply more stringently to the donkey in the Shrek movies. Yeah, except the difference is donkey's funny. That's uh, why he gets away with it. It's funnier. It's more comedically funnier. successful. Yeah, it's still always, to me, feel... Yeah, but it's also got... Eddie Murphy is the voice, which means right. that my bar for how funny it should be is a lot higher. Sure. But I'm saying there's um, a reason why Donkey became like a beloved popular character across five films. It seems like they're playing in the same uh, uh, archetype. Um, it, it, to me, the Donkey character yeah. in Shrek always felt like the type of thing that young Eddie Murphy would have been making fun of. Agreed. Um, as, as a stereotype. Um, or as a character that's just more, it's more laziness than anything. It's more like... Mm-hmm. Uh, settling for the first funny thing rather than deepening it and going for something more interesting. Um, but I would say that one of the things that draws attention to the things that feel like, whether it's the Nemoidians or the Gungans or Watto, is the fact that the human or humanoid, because we don't know if they're humans, do we? They are we simply humanoid, yeah. 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 we don't know. It's a galaxy um, far, far away are so boring that the default is that. So the attempts to be interesting mm-hmm. uh, are really just first first step attempt at being interesting. Yes. And Surface details. So Captain Panaka is so boring that he's not given any interesting character traits. Uh, and Jar Jar is given, like, first step, first att- baby step attempt at being quirky or interesting or fun. He talks funny and he is clumsy. Yeah, and I would say that... that the step towards making this movie less problematic for the people who look at it and just see, like, oh, look at all these, like, ethnic and race, racial stereotypes is that the default characters are so boring that it actually enhances the attempts to be to make these characters interesting mm-hmm. uh, is even more pronounced. <laughs> yeah, 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 I would agree with that. Well, I think that's a great point to end on. It is. Uh, I'd like to thank Connor uh, for thank coming you for on and being a guest on. today. Uh, people can Google you, check out. You do Stepfathers every weekend. Yeah. And you do the George Lucas Talk, Talk show. show. Check it out. You have the 12-hour day podcast. 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 Great and, podcast. And it's 12 hours long. Each episode is 12 yep. hours long. 12 hours long. We've talked uh, some about Phantom Menace on there, I'm sure. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Terry Withers Mysteries. Uh, oh, yeah. Month- oh, yeah. Monthly at uh, UCB Theater. Just use your Google wisely. And and the Chris Gathard show will be uh, on, starting on Fusion end of May. Yes, end of May. Ask Fusion your cable network. provider to get Fusion. Get it now. It's uh, the best show on television. Yep. Uh, and then you're a big part of its success. Thank you. I mean, uh, this incarnation is going to be a blast. Uh, and so, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, guys. And as always, may the Schwartz be with you.